You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Mary Newport. Uh, she's the author of a book called Alzheimer's Disease, What If There Was a Cure? Uh, the Complete Book of Ketones. So, Mary, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. <laughs> How about you? Very good. So, tell me, um, what was what led to you uh, wanting to write this book and writing this book? What, what events happened to cause you to write it? Yeah, so... Um, I'm a physician. I'm a, a neonatologist, which is a doctor that takes care of sick and premature newborns. Uh, my husband, Steve, uh, did accounting for my medical practice at home. He stayed home so he could be there for my kids, which was for our children, <laughs> which was great. And uh, when he was about 51 years old, he started having memory problems that became very significant. And in 2004, when he was only 54 years old, he was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease, oh, man. which was a real bummer. <laughs> you know, you think you're going to, I really liked, liked him, you know, liked him a lot and loved him. And, you know, you hope you're going to spend your golden years together. But, you know, the average lifespan from diagnosis with Alzheimer's is about seven years. And for people with early onset, it's often even sooner than that, three or four years. So um, quick, it looks quick, like quick question: Why why is that? What is it that um, causes them to uh, you know to pass prematurely? Um, uh, you mean in general, like people with Alzheimer's, or in, in ge- right in general? Why why is you know I would mm. think that the public probably thinks Alzheimer's is you know forgetting and losing your memory, but why would it lead mm. to premature death? Yeah, it's horrible because um, you basically almost go back in time developmentally, you know, uh, at at some point you become kind of like a three-year-old functioning that way, and then a two-year-old, and then an infant where you can't even feed yourself. Um, A lot of people stop talking completely, or when they do talk, it's uh, pretty much gibberish. Um, They become incontinent. They uh, lose control of their bowels and bladder, and, you know, eventually, you know, they just stop eating. They stop eating and forget how to swallow. It's horrible. They forget how to chew okay. and swallow. And so somebody that dies of Alzheimer's usually dies from basically starvation or from aspiration pneumonia, you know, where they're attempting to eat, but they, you know, they inhale their food and they'll get pneumonia from that. So those are probably the two more common ways to die from Alzheimer's disease. So it's just horrible. I mean, they have every single thing done for them. They're basically in bed towards the end, have to be rolled over (laughs) and uh, changed and, you know, bathed and everything. You know, they can't do anything for themselves. So it's a horrible, horrible disease. And, you know, a lot of um, elderly people die of something else before they actually die of Alzheimer's. You know, it's something that um, they may have the last year or two or three of their life, but they haven't gotten to that stage yet. So they might have heart disease or some other thing, you know, that they die from instead of Alzheimer's. But people with the earlier onset tend to actually die from the Alzheimer's. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, please go ahead with the story. Yeah, so um, 
So Steve was diagnosed at age 54, and, you know, he was a guy that was super active. Uh, he did kayaking. He'd go like a mile and a half off the beach. <clears throat> he was um, he did all of his accounting work on the computer. Every day he was on the computer, and he loved to play on the computer, and he did landscaping, uh, just very physically active and mentally, you know, creative. He read and read novels and you know, all of this eroded, you know, over a few years. And, you know, um, by the time he was 56, he couldn't drive anymore. He couldn't even remember how to turn a computer on. So it was just awful. And in 2008, we were, um, you know, thinking, all right, you know, I'm thinking he's, he's on a downward spiral. Things weren't looking good. Uh, wasn't talking well. <laughs> and we had an opportunity for him to get into a clinical trial for um, Alzheimer's, and they were very few and far between. So um, he tried out for one. His test score—you had to be have a like be in the mild to moderate range—and his test score was too low for him to qualify at that point, which was horrible, you know, because we had waited a long time and yeah, then he could get in. And so um, they told us he could come back and test again. And then there was another clinical trial that came along at a different location. And I scheduled him for screenings to get into the trials two days in a row. And the night before the first screening, I was on the internet and I'm looking for the risks and benefits of these two drugs. And I happened upon a medical food uh, press release about it. That was um, something I had never heard of. And um, it claimed that it helped almost half the people with Alzheimer's that took it. It improved their memory and their cognition, which none of the Alzheimer's medications do that. They maybe slow down the disease for six months or so. So I was really curious about what it was, and it didn't really say there what it was or how it works. So I found their patent application online. And as I'm reading through it, I learned that Alzheimer's is a type of diabetes of the brain where there's trouble getting glucose, which is a normal fuel for brain cells, you know, the usual fuel, I should say, um, they have trouble getting glucose into brain cells in a certain part to their brain. Uh, it's a big mm. major component of Alzheimer's. And so um, what this company had come up with was the idea of using something called MCT oil, medium chain triglyceride oil, um, as a treatment because when you consume MCT oil, your liver converts part of it to ketones. And ketones are an alternative fuel for the brain. So, you know, people these days talk about going keto, keto diet, ketogenic diet. It's a very low carb, very high fat diet. Um, and, you know, the aim is to have some ketones circulating because they're an alternative fuel for your, your brain and almost all the other organs in your body. And we naturally have ketones when we're fasting or in starvation or on this very high fat, low carb diet. So um, it was an interesting idea, an interesting trick, you know, that maybe somebody with Alzheimer's who isn't getting glucose normally into their brain would respond to being able to use ketones in those brain cells. And so... Yeah, um, a quick question there. Yeah. Is it insulin resistance of the brain cells to yeah. process yeah, glucose or is it yeah. that, that they just can't take in the glucose? There's several different things going on. One is insulin resistance. So they can have really high blood sugar and insulin levels and they're not getting, they're still not getting glucose into those cells. So insulin resistance is part of it. Um, insulin deficiency in the brain. Apparently the brain makes some insulin. They have yet to figure out exactly where, but um, it's deficient in the brain. And then there are a couple of um, glucose transporters. So these are like um, molecules that help transfer glucose into the brain and into brain cells. They're deficient in Alzheimer's. And some enzymes, there's one called pyruvate dehydrogenase that's deficient in Alzheimer's. So it's kind of like there's a conspiracy of getting glucose into the brain in these people, you know, that have Alzheimer's. Mm. The, it's a mystery. Why does that happen? Nobody knows. Um, a lot of people think that it could be one of several different um, microbes, you know, microorganisms. Uh, that caused this to happen or um, whatever causes, you know, there's a big, you know, epidemic of type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance. What causes that? <laughs> you know, is it just simply eating too much sugar, too much carbohydrate, or is there something else going on? You know, uh, we don't have the answer to the questions yet. But 
at any rate, um, they've been able to document that very well in people with Alzheimer's that there's decreased glucose uptake. And more recently, there's um, work in Canada um, doing ketone and glucose PET scans, Dr. Stephen Kunane, and he's been able to show that the Alzheimer brain takes up ketones normally, perfectly normally in those areas of the brain. And he's doing some studies with MCT oil. So this all kind of happened more recently, you know, since Steve responded to it. But, you know, so getting back to him, um, I kind of learned about this around, uh, you know, I'm reading and reading about it, learning everything I can. It's about 1 a.m. and he's supposed to screen at 9 a.m. So I didn't really have a chance to do anything about it. And the other, you know, crazy thing about finding this is that, you know, being a neonatologist, one of the things we did was when I was um, first practicing, like in the um, late 70s, early 80s, we used to add MCT oil to the feedings of our tiniest preemies because they absorbed it well and they would grow faster and get home faster. And it's in all the premature infant formulas and it's in many uh, normal newborn formulas. And um, one of the things uh, that I learned in this patent application was that MCT oil is extracted from coconut oil, which is the richest natural source of medium chain triglycerides and palm kernel oil is a close second. Um, it's not very available in the US. Um, but um, so that's where I got the idea of how to help them because I didn't know, or, you know, that I could get MCT oil very easily, okay. or, you know, that it was available. Um, but I knew a coconut what, what oil. Year, what year was this? This was 2008. So it wasn't really even right. that easy to find coconut oil at that point. It was um, mainly in health food stores, and I could get it on Amazon. So um, I happened to remember that, um, you know, there was a health food store that um, I had seen it at. And so we went, you know, in the morning for his first screening, and I hadn't had a chance to do anything about getting coconut oil. And he did very poorly. Uh, again, he um, there's a a test called the mini mental status exam. It's a 30 point test that if you're normal, you just get 30 points. It's a pretty easy test, but he scored only um, 14 and he needed 16 to qualify. So we were really bummed out and um, the doctor had him draw a clock, a clock test for Alzheimer's. And he drew like several little circles and a few numbers, just kind of random. They weren't even organized Mm. in a circle, like a clock. It was, and she told me he was on the verge of severe Alzheimer's and so I thought on the way home, what do we have to lose? I'm going to get some coconut oil and see if it works. You know, it was just kind of a shot in the dark. And um, but with science behind it, this whole idea of ketones as fuel for the brain. And so um, when we got home with the coconut oil, I got online again and I had to kind of go back to freshman 101 biochemistry to remind myself what are the medium chain triglycerides and I was able to get the fatty acid composition of coconut oil from a USDA website, and I right. learned that it was 60%, 60% medium-chain triglycerides. And so I figured out how much coconut oil to give them to be equal to the dose they were using for the medical food, you know, in the clinical trials that they had done. And um, so the next day, he was scheduled, like, to have a screening for that other drug in the afternoon around 1.00. And uh, so around nine in the morning, I gave him, it was a little over two tablespoons is what I had calculated. <clears throat> and um, he had that with his breakfast. I put it in some oatmeal because, you know, coconut oil is kind of solid at room temperature. <laughs> right. So um, he ate that. And on the way down, you know, we were kind of talking about the test. Like what, I mean, it's things like what are the day, what's, what is the day of the week? You know, what, uh, what is the season? What floor are we going to be on? You know, uh, what city are you in? It's just, you know, a lot of basic questions like that. And um, he couldn't remember any of it on the way down. So I thought, oh, he's not going to do any better. But apparently it kicked in right about the time he took the test. And he he brought his score up by four points from the day before. So this time he actually qualified to get into the study, which was kind of amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um at at that point, I'm like, well, I don't know if it was just really good luck. You know, we were in a different city. So the floor he was on and the city we were in were different and from the day before. Um, and, you know, he couldn't remember the day of the week or the season. It was a different day, same season. But he managed to get those points right. So um, I thought, well, I'm going to keep this going and see what happens. And 
it was just kind of dramatic over the next four or five days. Um, he had been like real sluggish in the morning, barely talking. Um, if he wanted to get like, uh, say, a spoon out of the drawer, he'd come back with a knife and he'd do that over and over, like repeating himself, couldn't finish his sentences. You know, that's kind of how, he, you know, how he was. And but he started you know, having more energy and he could finish sentences and he started whistling again. He was a guy that would whistle all these beautiful medleys. He's got a, and he um, just started making jokes. And I mean, it was so dramatic That's what right. happened over four or five days. You know, I felt like I got my husband back. And, and then I also felt like I had a really big secret, <laughs> that something like 35 million people with Alzheimer's in the world, them and their families needed to know about it. And um, so we kind of, we kept it going and I started contacting people like um, Dr. Richard Veach, V-E-E-C-H. He's at the NIH in um, uh, near Washington, D.C. and he's a world expert on ketones. And I started talking to him about it and he was working on something called a ketone ester that just finally became available within the la last year to the public. And um, it's, you know, he could get ketone levels much, much higher than what you can get with MCT oil or coconut oil, and he um, really didn't think somebody would respond to MCT or coconut, but when, um, like two weeks after Steve took his first dose, he drew a clock again, and this time it was a circle, it had all the numbers in it, and all the correct numbers in the right order around the clock. It was so much more organized, oh, wow. and he, yeah. He had about two dozen hands of the clock, though. I mean, it was a little, it was like, whoa, this is, you know, we don't know what this is, but it was so much better than the previous clock. Um, and, you know, so Dr. Veach really paid attention to that. He started sending me all kinds of information about hypothesis papers he had put out, um, his patent application, so I could read all about it, you know, with the ketone ester. And, you know, at that point, he was having tremendous difficulty getting funding for mass production and clinical trials, you know, for Alzheimer's. He felt it would work for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, ALS. Um, it would help people with type 2 diabetes. You know, they, they also have insulin resistance in multiple organs. It could help prevent damage, organ damage, you know, to eyes and kidneys and all of that. Um, so, you know, to me, it, it just kind of became, uh, I became possessed. <laughs> by the need to get this message out to as many people as possible. And um, Definitely, I yeah. started, yeah, so I started contacting media people. Um, 2008, we were in the middle of primaries, you know, so I was contacting politicians and the Alzheimer's Association. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor, her husband had Alzheimer's and she was in a special Alzheimer's study group at that point. So I wrote to so many people and like nobody responded and I was telling him, you know, my husband, I know he's just one case, you know, but this is a medical food people. It's on the shelf, you know, it was on the shelf. They could either as coconut oil. And by then I had found out that you could get it as MCT oil. I mean, there was a, uh, uh, a fitness company that actually put out exactly the same medium chain triglyceride that was in that medical food, but you could get it over the counter and it cost so much less, you know, for a quarter what was, what was happening to your husband during this time? I mean, how long have he, he, you know, I would think your focus would be him and before you'd want oh, to reach yeah. out to help other people, of course. So what happened with him? What, what yeah. was his trajectory? Yeah. Well, he was, um, he went up, he went up over the next year. He continued to improve. Um, the mini mental status exam, you know, his low, right the day before taking it was 14 and it went up to 20 um, over several testings over a couple months. Um, he did get into the clinical trial. Um, he turned out to be on the placebo for the first year. So everything that happened the first year was, you know, um, probably 99% sure it had to do with the coconut oil but and the MCT oil. But, um, for example, he walked very weird, you know, like he had a real stiff gait, you know, he couldn't pick up his feet and run. And that all went away in about two months. He could run again. and um, he had not been able to read for about a year and a half, and he, but he couldn't tell me why until like three or uh, it was somewhere around three or three and a half months after he started the coconut oil. One day he told me, he said, I can read again. And I said, well, 
why couldn't you read it? And he said the words would shake on the page. He said it was like, he said, he described it as that they would go into pixels and move around on the page. And that's why he couldn't read. It was a physical thing, like a visual disturbance. And now it had stopped and he could read. And um, his comprehension wasn't good at that point. But around nine or 10 months, he started being able to remember what he read. And um, just one example was, you know, we were in, I had a doctor appointment and he was waiting in the waiting room and he um, had read an article and several hours later, he tells me, oh, I read this article, you know, while you were with the doctor in Scientific American about Einstein. He told me some details about it. And I was like blown away because he couldn't even, you know, remember, you know, what he was talking about to finish a sentence before we started this. So it was really did, did you Did he talk to you? I mean, did you feel like you got your husband back or like how much did yeah, he improve? Oh, yeah. The maximum yeah, point? Yeah. He, yeah, he improved so much that I felt like I got my husband back and um, he didn't start driving or any of that again. That was too risky, but he actually improved enough that <clears throat> he was able to volunteer at the hospital that I worked at. He worked in the supply warehouse, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> he helped um, deliver supplies to the different departments and would put stickers on the supplies. And he was able to do that for uh, probably about up until about 18 months after we started the coconut oil. But um, okay. he, um, you know, basically then he kind of leveled off after a year. And I think part of it is, you know, there are a lot of brain cells that aren't functioning. They're not dead yet. And we kind of resuscitated them or kind of brought them back to life, I think. But there probably were areas that were gone. The connections were lost, you know, because of, you know, he was already eight years into the disease, probably from the first time he had symptoms, you know. And so I think there's maybe a limit to how much recovery you can have. And, you know, I had only wished... (laughs) we had known about this sooner, you know, when he first started having problems, if we had gotten to start that, you know, seven or eight years earlier, it could have made a big difference, you know, in the final outcome. But, um, and then, you know, he became, as he started kind of deteriorating a little bit. So this is about two years after he started the coconut oil, uh, Dr. Veach and I had stayed in contact and um, he had had toxicity studies on his ketone ester that were uh, completed and you know they were it was deemed safe you know by the FDA and so um, he was only able to make enough for one person and my husband became a clinical trial of one person with this ketone ester <clears throat> and it turned him around again rather dramatically um, he had kind of had a deterioration where he was having trouble doing things for himself again um, he needed help with uh, you know it's it's weird like you know people with Alzheimer's have to kind of step-by-step be reminded how to do things. So he would have trouble shaving, you know. First, you have to put the shaving cream on your face, and then you use the razor, and you you know, he had to be talked through things like that, and taking a shower, you know, get your hair wet, okay, now put the shampoo in your hair, okay, now rub it around real good, you know, that's how it was. And that, like in 24 hours, had completely reversed where he was able to do those things again. It became automatic. Hmm. And that's what he said. You know, he could do things again. That's what he felt like. And he felt happier because he could do things again. He always knew he had Alzheimer's and he knew what he had been able to do and could no longer do. He even became interested in the computer again, but he didn't really make any progress with getting back on the computer, but he wanted to, you know, uh, he had kind of given up any interest in it before. And um, did you, um, did you did you go on this path with him and change your diet and did you feel oh, like yeah. you guys ate yeah. well before this or you weren't eating well, well before this happened? Well, we started eating well about two years before that happened. <laughs> I had um, I think that may, might be a little bit why I was more tuned in to a nutritional intervention. Um, I started uh, so around 2006. Um, I started you know, reading more about nutrition and Alzheimer's. And I had come across a scientific article um, in a journal that they had done a study in which the people with Alzheimer's that ate the most Mediterranean type diet lived on average four years longer than the people that ate the least Mediterranean diet. And I thought, what? Diet could have something to do with this and it could slow it down and maybe, you know, uh, maybe I'll have them around longer. Uh, 
so um, up to that point, we, you know, uh, they don't teach us anything about nutrition in medical school. <laughs> I had I three know, hours one afternoon. Pathetic. It's, it's all about drugs. They don't teach you really how nutrition can cause disease and how it can help disease. We don't get that. Well, and, you, know, um, you know, it's funny. I mean, I guess doctors take the Hippocratic Oath still, right? Yeah. Yep. But wasn't it Hippocrates that said, let, let food be thy medicine? Exactly. It was. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not part of the oath. <laughs> but um, it's, it is, you know, one of his basic principles. And, and somehow they've completely lost that, you know, with medical school. It's all about, um, you know, pharmaceuticals and, and uh, you know, surgeries, possible treatments. And, you know, um, a lot of drugs cause a lot of problems. I mean, you know, when you watch these ads on TV, and, you know, something to treat psoriasis, a skin problem, can cause you to die. I mean, geez, old Pete's. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, like they say, uh, side effects may include dizziness, this, that, yeah. and the other, death. It's crazy. They show yeah. people dancing around mm-hmm. happy. Exactly. <laughs> While they're saying, you might die, and they're dancing. But, um, yeah, so when I read that about the Mediterranean diet, I thought, you know, I'm going to start reading more about nutrition. So that's really in 2006 when I got started with it. So I read every book I could get my hands on. I read about omega-3 fatty acids. I really wasn't tuned into that. I mean, that wasn't even known when I was in medical school, you know. And um, so, um, you know, we started eating much better at that point. Really, uh, we decided to eat like a whole food, Mediterranean type diet and we got rid of all the boxed and frozen foods and we were eating fast food all the time before that and you know so we completely redid our diet and um, you know much less carbohydrate I mean just by virtue of what we were eating you know not so much we weren't trying to be low carb but we were eating you know unrefined like whole grains you know and that kind of thing and just staying away we got the ice cream out of the house and that kind of stuff. And so um, I managed to lose a lot of weight over the next couple of years. So it helped me a whole lot. Um, but his Alzheimer's kept getting worse anyway, you know, which makes me think that it really makes me buy into the idea about infection, you know, causing Alzheimer's um, for many people. And so, um, you know, I had even started giving them omega-3 fats because there was going to be a clinical trial where you take um, DHA, so that's the one that your brain uses, the omega-3, and um, they were going to be taking 900 milligrams a day versus placebo. And I thought, well, you need omega-3 fatty acids. Why would we want to be in a trial where he might get the placebo? And I can just give it to him. So that's what I did. I added that to his diet also probably around that same time. So he had that for about two years before the coconut oil happened. And it was just very dramatic, a very dramatic improvement over four or five days that was so obvious that we looked at each other and said, our light, you know, our life's gotten better. And he said it was like the uh, light switch came back on in his brain the day he started the coconut oil. And um, was I he started, able to give you, it sounds like he was able to give you insights from the inside. Oh, you know, yeah. I've, I've never heard of a report of someone that's had Alzheimer's mm-hmm. coming out of it and then being able to talk about their experiences. So yeah. Did you document what he told book. you and, and what did it yeah. what did it tell you? Yeah. yeah, we we spent several hours one day. I mean, he had been giving me these little snippets and um so one day I said, you know, we've got to sit down and document this and it's actually in my first book. A lot of what he said, um, my first book was Alzheimer's disease, what if there was a cure, the story of ketones. And uh the first it's like three a three part thing, but the first part is his story and what happened and and in there, there are little side boxes where from the interview that I did with him, you know, um, about what it was like to have Alzheimer's, you know, so he talks about that and what it was like to come out of it, you know, and um, he would come, you know, with me. Uh, well, first, I wrote an article before I wrote the book and it got out on the Internet. It, there was a story that they ran in our local newspaper, the Tampa Bay Times, and that went viral. Um he had a picture of us, and he actually had three clocks, so he had one at 65 days, I believe, or 67 days, something like that, uh, or no, 37 days, um, where he improved even more. So they published um, a picture of us with the, his three clocks on the bottom, and the story went viral. And so then I started getting invitations to talk, first like at local 
health food stores and uh, the hospital I worked at asked me to talk and public library, you know, a few places like that. And um, he would come with me and people would ask him questions about Alzheimer's and he would answer them. <laughs> you know, it was just amazing. And um, and then, the, you know, then I was invited to talk at the Alzheimer's Disease International Conference in Greece. This was about two years uh, after it happened. Um, and, before you, uh, before you move on, can you give any uh -huh. anything he told you that, I don't know, shocked you or really surprised you? What did he tell you about what it was like that just, you know, like I said, it just hit home in you? Well, you know, I think part of it was that he would often understand what I was saying, but he he felt like he couldn't, he didn't know what was going to come out of his mouth. You know, he would think to say, to answer in a certain way. And, but what he said would be completely different than what he was thinking about, you know? So that was one really huge frustration uh, for him. Um, and, you know, uh, the computer, you know, not being able to use the computer knowing he had been able to, and then the visual disturbance because he couldn't tell me about that. He couldn't describe it or tell me why he couldn't read. And then suddenly he could, he could tell me, you know? So um, there were a lot of things like that. Um, I'd have to look back at my book uh, to, you know, see what the other things are, but it was really pretty amazing. And, and he, you know, in the same, same thing, like socially, uh, what he told me was, you know, he, he had been an outgoing person, smiled, like loved to talk to people. And he had become like a wallflower, <laughs> you know, if we uh, went to, you know, say a family get together or, um, uh, you know, some social event. He would just kind of right. stand in the background and really not talk to anybody. And he said it was because he was afraid of what he would say, you know, um, that he would say the wrong thing. So he withdrew and he was very upset. Uh, he had told me um, one of his brother-in-laws, who was like one of his favorite people in the world, you know, they would come and spend time with us. They were in uh, Cincinnati and, you know, we were in Florida. And uh, when we went to visit Cincinnati, um, his uh, brother-in-law would avoid him. And not talk to him and really? see, you know, yeah, yeah. And and um, the brother-in-law later told me it was because he was afraid of what he would say to Steve, that he would say the wrong thing. He was afraid to talk to him. But, you know, Steve told me, you know, how upset he was, you know, that, you know, he wanted to talk to him, but he, you know, he couldn't even pin him down for a second to talk to him. And so that was very disturbing. And um, another family member had said, uh, to him was trying to talk to him and had said well you wouldn't understand what I was talking about anyway and it hurt his feelings so much you know that, that she would say that you know yeah, you wouldn't yeah. understand what I was talking about you know like he was so gone that he didn't understand what she was talking about but he did understand he just couldn't respond you know um, yeah. he couldn't say the right thing so that that was um, terrible that sounds like a tremendous amount of fear and frustration and yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I always assumed, you know, because um, he did eventually pass away from Alzheimer's, you know, um, in 2000, uh, 2016. So he, um, you know, I, I think that the ketone, the whole idea at bottom of the extra three and a half or four years. And then he had what happened to him was he was standing and he uh had said goodbye to me, you know, he loved me, all this, you know, as I was going out to work, you know, I still was working right. in a newborn intensive care unit and I had somebody staying with him. And about five minutes later, she called me. I had just barely got to the hospital I worked at. And she said, Steve's had a seizure. You need to come home right away. She thought he was going to die. I mean, she had called EMS <laughs> and he had never had one before. And he fell, had fallen straight back and hit his head and he went into a full-blown seizure that lasted um, 20 minutes. He turned blue. He stopped breathing. When I got home, he was still blue. And I got there about the same time that EMS did. And then he had another seizure on the way to the hospital, they told me. And he was never the same after that. It was He had a head injury along with probably a lack of oxygen for a while. And then after that, he became dependent. <laughs> so it was heartbreaking. Oh, and um, it took about little about two and a half years after that and then he passed away and it was the classic what we talked about earlier that he just in the end he just um couldn't swallow so just uh, uh you know oh, sorry a terrible thing. yeah 
So seizures are common in Alzheimer's. And um, I was at a conference this summer, the Alzheimer's Association conference, and people have what they call subclinical seizures. They have seizure activity on their EEG, really? even if they aren't having obvious seizures on the outside. And so, you know, a lot of these people go on then to have actual, you know, visible seizures. And um, so, you know, who knows, I guess these just, you know, areas of the brain get damaged and then you can have a seizure from that. But anyway, so what do you, what do so you think the mechanism is that why did MCCA oil and, you know, ketone esters help? Did they, Mm-hmm. Was it that the glucose transport was damaged and that the brain can mm-hmm. also live off of ketones? So that, that yeah. gave a new pathway for the brain cells to get nourishment? Exactly, exactly. Ketones don't need um, these same transporters. They use different transporters. And that whole system, um, this guy in, um, who's doing the research in Canada, you know, has been able to show that ketones just are taken up like very easily, and they're, they're smaller molecules than glucose, a little bit smaller. Um, they don't need those transporters. They just, you know, like the higher your blood level of ketones is, the more ketone will be taken up in your brain as energy. And he's also been able to show that when you consume MCT oil, um, that your brain, it also increases the ketone uptake in your brain. So um, it increases your blood level of ketones, and then it increases the ketone uptake in your brain. So He's uh, just, um, he is working on one study, I think it's almost done, uh, but he uh, published results about halfway through the study that people who take 30 mLs a day, which is about uh, two tablespoons of MCT oil, and these are people mm-hmm. that had uh, mild cognitive impairment. So it's uh, right before, before you get Alzheimer's, people go through something called mild cognitive impairment. And um, that those people, um, he was able to document that they did have increased energy uptake to their brain and that it filled in what he calls the brain energy gap. And this happens even in, in elderly people where there's a gap between how much brain, uh, energy your brain needs and how much it actually gets. And in a healthy older adult whose memory is normal, it's about a 7% gap, you know. So huh. he's been able to show that MCT oil can provide enough fuel in the form of ketones to fill in that energy gap. And an, an elderly person, and um, he thinks about 45 mLs, which would be three tablespoons a day, would actually completely fill in the gap for people with mild cognitive impairment. And uh, people with oh, Alzheimer's wow. might need more. But so now he's um, he's finishing that study, and then um, he just got awarded by the Alzheimer's Association to do a study with the ketone ester. So he's going to do the same thing. Oh, and they did cognitive testing too, and the people did improve over the six months that they were on this MCT oil. Um, but what about what got, about yourself? I mean, you know, you were brave enough to do this uh, experiment yeah. in one. I mean, what are you doing with your own self? What have you noticed? Yeah, yeah. So um, when Steve started the coconut MCT oil, I, you know, he responded so well to it. I thought, you know, this could be a prevention strategy, you know, and which. Dr. Kunate is finding out is probably true. Um, so I started also using coconut and MCT oil and, you know, back then. And um, at that time, the thing I noticed the most is that I had increased what I call mental endurance. You know, I was reading and reading and retaining information better, you know, um, and just, I don't know, just able to hang in there, you know, when your brain just kind of poops out and, you know, think I can't do anything more today. You know, I was you know, I would keep going, you know, and um, so I've kept it going this whole time. At at that point, too, I, I was, um, well, I'm just turning 67, so I was in my uh, late 50s when all this was happening, and um, I started feeling like I was just a little, you know, slowing down the brain, you know, pulling things out of your brain that you should remember, you know, sometimes we're just a little bit slower at times, but that all seemed to right. go away pretty quickly for me. And, you know, I have Alzheimer's on both sides of my family. So, you know, I've been really, yeah. you know, worried about it. And um, so I feel great, you know, mentally. Um, I started uh, two years, well, no, now it's three years ago, um, ketone salts became available on the market. <clears throat> so this is, yeah, I take those. The those are much easier than esters, which are disgusting. Yeah, esters are disgusting. Uh, there's one out, though, now that's improved. I started uh, recently trying that, too. Um, is that so, human, you know, or which my, one is that? 
Um, it's ketone aid. And okay. um, yeah, he's got a little, he's got one that is, uh, he calls it very scary cherry because, I mean, ketone ester compared to, <laughs> it's not something you've ever tasted before. You know, you think, what is this? You know, but when Steve was taking it, it was so much worse. And um, it's, there's so a big question of you. What what uh-huh. is it like for you to take a ketone salt versus an ester? What have you noticed? You know, um, I would think some people mm-hmm. may be afraid to take a ketone ester because it's so powerful and more short-lived mm-hmm. than a ketone salt. So what have you noticed? Well, well, for one thing, the dose that they recommend for the esters are much, much higher than probably what most people need. <laughs> um, now, Steve was taking a lot. He was taking that kind of a dose, 25 or 30 grams uh, three times a day. Uh, which is what they're wow. using for the elite athletes, you know, and that's hefty. That's a hefty amount. It gets your ketone levels very high, very quickly, and it also drives your blood sugar down <laughs> very quickly, uh, which uh, if you feel strange after you take it, it's probably because your blood sugar has gone down. So um, the um, ketone salts are more on the order of maybe eight grams instead of 25 or 30 grams, you know, in a serving, uh, but they still increase your ketone level pretty substantially by, you know, for me, it's like one millimole, you know, uh, uh, most people don't know what that is. But like, if you're, if you've been starving for a long time, you'll get the five or six or seven millimoles, which is about the upper limits of where ketones can get without being in ketoacidosis, so to speak. So you take the ketone ester, 25 or 30 grams, and most people will in a half hour to an hour be up to five millimoles. Um, most people don't need to be that high, you know, um, right, somebody yeah. who has epilepsy may want to stay up there, you know, to control their seizures. Um, somebody that has cancer, um, that's using, you know, the strategy as an adjunct to their standard of care treatment, they could benefit from having a really high ketone level like that. But, you know, for most people, um, like with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or just people wanting general health benefits, probably somewhere between like 0.5 and maybe 1.5 or 2 millimoles is a pretty good range. And the ketone salts can help you get into that range. Or taking a ketone ester, just 5 grams of beta-hydroxybutyrate, the ketone um, would probably be equivalent to taking 8 grams of a ketone salt. Um, So they both lower your blood sugar. And I've checked it only on myself, but it's about the same amount, you know, those uh, the eight grams of, you know, with the ketone salts and the five grams with the ketone ester. So um, my blood sugar goes down by about 15 uh, milligrams per deciliter, and it'll go down sometimes in the high 60s, low 70s, which is pretty down there, <laughs> you know. Do you, do you um, take it before you eat or after you eat, by the way? I, um, I don't um, pay too much attention to that, actually. Um, uh, I do... I usually take one or the other in the morning. Lately, I'm trying both. I'm just trying to get a feel for which, you know, if there's any, if there's that much difference. And I'm finding, you know, with those two equivalent doses that I'm not really noticing too much difference myself. Um, But so I usually take it in the morning. And then um, lately, I've been trying again, like in the early evening. I tried it later in the evening, and I really couldn't sleep. I would stay awake for an hour or two. Um, laying awake, you know, and some people feel they they sleep much better if they take um, the ketone ester or ketone salts in the evening. So I guess everybody's a little different on that. And I notice if I take it too late at night, I'll have like super vivid, very long dreams. (laughs) It's very interesting. But um, how how is this, um, how is all this experiences and the writing and the talking, how has this changed? Are you still practicing as a doctor or a pediatrician? And if so, how has it changed? What do you do? Yeah. Um, well, when Steve started having seizures, I quit working in the newborn ICU shortly after that. I really, when I was reading about it, I thought he was in the last stages and I decided to take some time off. But then when I went back to work, um, for I did actually home visits for hospice for a few years. He had been in hospice and um, I just loved that doctors and nurses came to our home. So I did that for a about three years, and now I do home visits with people that have chronic conditions. So an awful lot of them have diabetes and dementia, and I feel like I can do a lot of good that way. I do a lot of nutrition counseling, which most doctors don't even touch, <laughs> you know, 
Um, <clears throat> so I find that interesting and it's kind of um, a part-time job for me. I travel a lot and I'm able to um, schedule, you know, uh, the days that I work, however many or few as I want, which is kind of amazing. Um, so that's what I'm doing to kind of keep in contact doing patient care and getting to help people with nutrition. And, um, you know, uh, I do uh, travel all over the world. Um, I had an amazing summer. I went to Asia three times. <laughs> um, I went to the Philippines. I got to go to China. I went to um, Japan. South Korea, um, and I've also been to Singapore and Thailand uh, in Asia and um, all over Europe, um, Germany, Northern Italy. Uh, so what have France. you noticed in, in your travels and what have you noticed? How, how do people react to your message? How do they react to your story? And is it different amongst different countries or people? It's very positive. It's very positive reaction. Um, in Asia, there is a lot of coconut in the tropical parts of Asia. And um, some of the, the uh, people that brought me there were people that, for example, um, they were having a coconut oil conference and it was the first time they were actually including the health benefits of coconut in the conference that they were having. So they invited me to be a speaker for that. You know, So I had a, a several different instances of that. Um, there are a couple of big companies in Japan that manufacture um, MCT oil from coconut or palm kernel oil. And so they were very interested in this. But, you know, the, the public is interested too. It's, um, you know, their uh, Alzheimer's is on the rise all around the world, including parts of Asia. And like Japan had like the lowest rates and their rates are climbing. And in Singapore, early onset Alzheimer's has increased by 300% over the last five years. You know, wow. it's amazing. What do you think is doing really, this? The diet, or what? What do you think is causing? I think it's the diet. I, my gut feeling is the diet. You know, spending a little bit of time there. Um, you know, for example, in Japan, <laughs> I was just shocked because they're known for very healthy eating. They eat a lot of fish, you know, and vegetables and all of that. But um, their main, their big department stores, the whole entire first floor is nothing but sweets. <laughs> it's like all That's these right, different yeah. kiosks with chocolates and everything you know every kind of like rice based you know um treats and candies and things that they have and and um you know uh obesity is on the rise in japan too and about diabetes you know at the same time so you know this it's really a, a high carb you know um simple sugar <laughs> uh refined grains you know white flour uh white rice they eat a lot of white rice, and until about the 1980s, you know, they didn't eat white rice. They ate um, brown and black rice. I mean, you know, it was unrefined rice, and only the wealthiest people could get white rice, you know. So um, their diet has changed drastically and in recent years, and ours has probably even before that, you know. Um, trans fats, were, their FDA is working on banning them here in the U.S., but they're still everywhere, you know, those countries. Um, a lot of people eat out. Like I noticed in Singapore, you know, they like to eat out a lot. And they have these um, food malls, you know, where they have, you know, um, counters, food counters from all the different countries. <laughs> you know, that there's Korean food, right. there's Vietnamese food, there's all of that. But, you know, they tend to use um, oils that they use over and over and over. And a lot of them have trans fats in them. And, you know, people are eating this. And that's very kind of toxic. That oils tend to get toxic after a while when they're used over and over. And um, something that you know, I hope we get away from here in the U.S. too. Uh, well, everywhere. Um, so I do think that there's been really a deterioration in the quality of of the food people are eating, um, probably in the last few decades. But even the last 10 to 15 years, you know, continuing to get worse as it spreads throughout the world. So that's my gut feeling of, you know, where, um, you know, why it's on the rise. Um, if it's infections, you know, my questions about that are, you know, um, you know, uh, they need fuel too. <laughs> Bacteria, viruses, whatever cause infections, they need fuel. And is it the availability of this high, you know, amount of sugar, high, you know, blood sugar that allows infections to take off? You know, I, that's just a question that I have. And, um, that I hope to find the answer to. Um, but 
you know, it's at any rate, you know, that is what's happening. It's not showing any sign of declining or even leveling off at this point, you know, the increase in Alzheimer's. And um, so, you know, it's a tragedy uh, that affects so many people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, like Singapore. (laughs) You said you do a lot of nutritional counseling. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know everyone's different. Every situation is different. Yeah. But what yeah. general things can you mention that you think mm-hmm. will be helpful to people listening? Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things I'll ask, like if they have dementia or they say, oh, my God, my memory's so bad, you know, I'll ask them. I'll start with, um, have you ever heard of using coconut oil for Alzheimer's or for memory? You know, and uh, usually they say no. Uh, some people actually have it in their house and they've been using it on their skin but they haven't been eating it, you know, which is interesting. Um, so I kind of start there and then I, I talk about, um, have you ever heard about um, eating a lower carb diet? And I tell them that they should think about cutting out sugary drinks. An awful lot of people drink uh, Coca-Cola and Mountain Dew um, and, you know, that they should um, – there's a study out there showing that the brain, even if you drink one a day of a sugary drink, that your brain, it ages your brain by like three years uh, when they're looking at MRI brain shrinkage, um, that kind of really? thing. Wow. Um, if you drink three or more a day, it can be 11 years of brain aging if you're in your 50s. So it accelerates brain aging just to drink sugary drinks, you know. So, um, yeah, terrible. So I, you know, uh, tell, talk to them about that and to reduce the starchy foods in their diet. Most people kind of have some idea what starchy foods are, like, you know, like potatoes and rice and bread. And I kind of name them cereal, pasta. And, you know, I tell them, you know, most people aren't going to get rid of that, especially if they're elderly. They're not going to stop eating that stuff. And I tell them, just think about maybe cutting your portion in half. And after you kind of get used to that, maybe cut it in a quarter, you know, and just reduce how much of that you're eating. And, you know, to think about getting like whole grain rice, you know, uh, instead of white rice, if you eat rice or, you know, whole grain breads, if you're going to keep eating some breads, you know, just think about getting away from some of those simple sugars and the refined, you know, white flour and that kind of thing and uh, eat more vegetables. You know, I uh, tell them that Um, so, so many people I'm talking to are diabetic and they've never, I mean, they're drinking Coca-Cola, they're eating, you know, know, their breakfast is like Pop-Tarts. It's like, oh my God. And they'll be taking three oral medications and two different forms of insulin to control their blood sugar. And it's like, I said, did you ever get, you know, serious nutrition counseling for your diabetes? No, not really. You know, um, they might get handed a piece of paper, you know, and that's as as far as their nutrition counseling goes. Well, you know, they, they need to know that they may not need anywhere near that amount of medication and inject themselves with insulin if they can eat a lower carb diet and eat. And I tell them to eat more healthy fats. So I usually mention olive oil. And for some people, if they're dealing with memory, I tell them, um, you know, about coconut and MCT oil. Um, there's some uh, liquid coconut cooking oils, by the way, that are um, they're medium chain triglycerides, and then they have the lauric acid, which isn't a uh, medium chain, but it's not in the usual MCT oil. But there's one. Um, it's called it's called it's Carrington Farms brand, but they have um, it's uh, liquid coconut cooking oil that's high in lauric acid, and lauric acid is antimicrobial. It kills viruses, bacteria. They use it in the animal industry. They use it in their medical applications for using lauric acid. It's in a lot of skin products. Um, and, you know, I think, okay, so if Alzheimer's is caused by a microorganism, possibly including this lauric acid, you know, in your diet, which is in coconut oil, could be another factor that could help control, you know, and maybe, you know, like in my husband's case, he improved, you know, and in the beginning, it was fuel. I think it was ketones that very early on, but over time, his improvement, it's, it's possible that the, um, the lauric acid, you know, was control, helping control an infection, you know, in his brain. So, um, you know, so I, t- I talked to him about eating healthy fats and, you know, maybe limiting fruit, like if they're eating a whole bunch of fruit, you know, maybe to limit to um, in how much they're eating and, you know, like berries, strawberries, blueberries, have less sugar than other fruits, maybe thinking about eating those if they like them. Um, 
And, you know, uh, I talk about, you know, snacks like nuts, cheese, you know, things, you know, healthier uh, foods instead of, um, you know, potato chips and <laughs> things like that. So, um, well, very that's good. Kind of well, so, um, okay. I mean, we're, um, we've gone a long while. We're kind of out of time, but I want to give listeners yeah. resources because you have a lot of insights that mm-hmm. most people never have. Yeah, I know they were hard one and, you know, not for a good reason, but what are, what are resources? Where can people get your books? Like, I want you to restate the names of them, where they can get them, okay. and what other resources you have, if you don't mind. Okay. So um, I have a website. It has a whole lot of information. I've written a lot of articles myself about, you know, all of these different topics. Um, I have a lot of the scientific literature related to ketones. Um, I have recommended books on there, including my own books. Um, and, you know, videos that people can watch if they don't want to read articles, you know, that talk about these things. Um, and so that website is, uh, coconut, C-O-C-O-N-U-T, ketones, K-E-T-O-N-E-S dot com. So coconutketones.com. A lot of people try to put a Y okay. in the ketones. There's no Y. It's just K-E-T-O-N-E-S. And, um, so, you know, there's a whole lot of information about um, the keto diet, um, coconut and MCT oil, like guidelines for getting started with using that. I have something, for example, about um, using ketone salts and then using them in the elderly and people with medical conditions, something they can take to their doctor. You know, I feel like if they have, if they're elderly or, you know, have a medical condition that they, um, that, um you know, that they need to be monitored. You know, the blood sugar can go down if they're on medications, diabetic, they need to work with their doctor to very quickly adjust their medications. Um, there are some people that are on diuretics, water pills, and they might be on potassium. And if they're going to take like ketone salts, they need to know that there is sodium and potassium and you know, these other minerals that are in ketone salts. And, you know, they might need to have their doctor monitor that. So, you know, I have guidelines for that kind of thing that people can read. Um, and, you know, just really a lot of information on there. Uh, okay. So yeah, I see you have a TEDx to talk, University of uh, South yeah. Florida. Yeah. 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 I have a TEDx talk. Um, that I have um, a bunch of little videos, and it I think it takes you to my playlist. Um, so I have some longer talks that there's one at the um, IHMC, which is the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. That one's about an hour long. Um, there's some other interviews uh, with me. Um, there's a series of interviews from 2009 that were done in our living room with my husband sitting there and he talks in one of them a little bit oh, wow. about uh, the Alzheimer's and coming around with the coconut oil. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's a whole uh, there are a whole lot of uh, videos that can you can watch on YouTube if you plug my name in there. Uh, there's one called Coconut Oil is Not Poison. <laughs> um, mm. A billion people in Asia have been eating it for millions of years, and you know it's, it hasn't killed them. You know, um, and so anyway, so I talk about that. There was that whole media thing uh, maybe a year ago. You know, where some part-time Harvard professor had made some statement, you know, uh, coconut oil is pure poison. And uh, it was just purely ridiculous. She's a biostatician. It was part of a bigger lecture that she just happened to mention that. And somebody, it, the media just took off with it. And um, it's really, oh, it's so annoying when that happens because it couldn't be yeah, further crazy. from the truth. Yeah. But well, very anyway. good. Mary, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for all that you do. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I am a messenger for ketones and, you know, every opportunity <laughs> I have to talk about it, I, I do. <laughs> so. Excellent. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. 
Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.